This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Six Hour. My guest today is an extraordinary individual, Michael G. Waltz, congressman for Florida's 6th Congressional District. And he is also the first Army Special Forces soldier, Green Beret, serving in Congress. And he is unique in that he served on the front lines of the war on terror, specifically in Afghanistan, and then was a policy advisor to the president, the vice president, and secretary of defense back in Washington. So he has a unique lens through which to view the last 20 years and uh, had an amazing time talking to him. We've got to know each other over the past couple months and have a few initiatives that we're working on together that I hope to be able to share at some point in the future. But check out his book right here, Warrior Diplomat. All the proceeds go to the Green Beret Foundation. Uh, He's also a businessman who built and sold a business. So he has that background as well when he's on the floor of Congress doing the nation's business. So uh, without further ado, Congressman Waltz. Congressman Waltz, let's jump right in because I have limited time with you and I'm so excited to talk to you. We got linked up uh, not too long ago through a mutual friend. uh, And so we got to catch up a little bit between, I think another time you were in the halls of Congress on your phone between votes or something like that. So, you know, for me, from the outside looking in, that's just, uh, it's kind of exciting to see just just that you would take the time to, to do that one and then how busy you guys are back there doing the nation's yeah. business. So uh, thank you for making you the know, time it's today. It's a different kind of foxhole, man. You know, like <laughs> some people ask me all the time, how's it going? And I'm like, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not getting shot at. Nobody's blowing me up. And, and as long as, you know, as long as our nation and our leaders are duking it out over debate, even when we're yelling at each other uh, and it, it's, it's all verbal, uh, and not like most other nations do where bullets are flying, we'll be okay. But it, you know, it's, it's a different kind of service. That's for sure. That's it. It's always good to keep things in uh, perspective in that way. I think the same thing. Hey, no one's rolling a grenade in here. Uh, you know, yeah. I'm not uh, responsible for guys over here in a gun truck taking fire or whatever. You know, we can talk these things out. Um, but for those that don't know you, so you were the first army special forces soldier to serve in Congress. Yeah, That's I, I awesome. still find it hard to believe. Um, it makes me wonder, you know, what were all my forefathers up to? But I know but Come we on. checked a couple of different ways, and I'm the first Green Beret to serve in Congress. Uh, by our count, uh, there's been four SEALs. Okay. Uh, so of course, I just you know tell them it takes four of them to equal one of us, and yeah, we call it a day. Right? <laughs> I understand. I understand. Uh, and so for you, so you represent uh, Florida's sixth congressional district. Right. Um, you uh, VMI graduate went to Ranger yep. School, then went to SF Selection, and uh, but my first, I want to ask you. So you're the son and grandson of Navy chiefs. So how did how did we lose you to the army? What what happened there? Yeah, I know. I defected, man. I, I went <laughs> I, I went off the rails, but uh, but. Grew up in the Jacksonville, Florida area, big Navy town, three Navy bases uh, there. That's how my family ended up there. Never really knew my dad. He went off on sea duty and and never came back, uh, at least uh, at least to my mom. And grew up with a single mom who just broke glass barrier after glass barrier. She's my rock. Uh, ended up taking her 15 years of night school and weekend. Uh, we graduated the same year of college. Uh, and, uh, you know, I went off to VMI and got the crap beat out of me, head shaved <laughs> every Monday and, uh, went, went on. I'm still going in, uh, the national guard actually. Yeah, Colonel. So we've also confirmed I'm the only member of Congress still on jump status, still jumping out of perfectly nice. good airplanes, uh, and was, was able to do one of the most amazing jumps that I know you're going to be jealous of, uh, in jumping over St. Mary Gleese for the 75th anniversary of D-Day out of the original World War II C-47 that led the 101st Airborne, man. It was awesome. That is incredible. I always wanted to do that. So some of our guys that were uh, assigned to what was then Unit 2 in Stuttgart, Germany, yeah. uh, in charge of things in, in Europe and North Africa at the time, anyway, uh, they got to go and do some of those jumps on different anniversaries. And I was always jealous of those guys getting to do that because, I mean, what an amazing experience. Jack, we uh, did then, it. Uh, we did it with uh, a seven, uh, excuse me, a 92 that's what Your I was just going to say. Yep, that is the best uh, part. Right. That uh, that of course he was strapped on to one of my 
uh, fellow retired Green Berets. Man, he was hooting and hollering all the way down to the ground. And, you know, we, I asked him on the ground, well, how was it? And he said, a hell of a lot better than last time, <laughs> you know, 75 years ago. That's fantastic. Oh, uh, and it, the other thing, if, if, you know, if your listeners have never been, you got to add Normandy to your list. Yep. The react, the French people, they're very different than the ones in Paris. And uh, they love America, huge hand painted banners and signs, American flags everywhere. Welcome to our liberators. Thank you for our freedom. We love you for America. You would have thought D-Day had happened like last week, yeah. uh, not 75 years ago. Uh, just really, really special. And uh, I did it with a Democrat, uh, former Army Ranger, uh, so it was bipartisan. <laughs> we, you know, just what a way to what a way to celebrate uh, our nation's forefathers and and the beauty of America that we are willing to go die and sacrifice our blood and treasure for other people's freedom, for the idea uh, of of liberty. Uh, and I tell the French all the time, you know that that thing you did for us in 1776 it was payback in in 1945 right and <laughs> what, a, what a cool way to celebrate no it's amazing and I, I went there before i uh i enlisted and then i went there once when i was in the military as well so i've been there twice i want to take my kids uh the best defense foundation actually got donnie edwards former nfl player takes these veterans from world war ii back to these battlefields so for most of yeah. them they're seeing it for the last time and I'm going to hope help, hopefully help him out as uh, as COVID restrictions wane maybe a little bit. And we can get those guys over there. Uh, going to go to uh, to Pearl Harbor, same thing. Take those veterans out there, and uh, hopefully I'm just gonna, you know take somebody in their wheelchair, or their walker, help them out a little bit uh, come this coming December. So it's so important to have that connection with the past, especially for our youth to see that that are so distracted by so many That's different right. things out there that weren't distractions 30 years ago. Um, well, they are distractions now and, uh, being able to take that time looking down those cliffs at point to Hawk and, and, uh, imagining those Rangers climbing well, and, up there. And, and I think, I think a thing that's missed not to go too far down this, you know, down this trail, but I think a thing that's missed about the greatest generation is, you know, it didn't matter black, white, or Brown, Jewish or Christian, you know, uh, social economic background, rich or poor, you were all forced together uh, for a common cause because in the foxhole, none of that stuff matters. I mean, you know, we're not on the black helicopter at night counting the number of Hispanics or whites or whites. It's just, you're all American. That's and then right. these bullets could care less. Uh, they only care about what flag you have on your shoulder. And that ethos, I think, really carried forward with that generation. It's one of the reasons I'm pushing for us to get back to national service uh, and, and it doesn't have to be in uniform. It could be at national parks or inner city tutoring, but how do we get young people out with people who don't look like them, right. Uh, out serving a higher cause, uh, and with fellow Americans. And it really came home to me when, uh, a world war II veteran that I became close to in Florida said, you know, the first black person he ever really had a relationship with coming from the segregated South was his bunk mate in the Navy. Right. And they were like literally sleeping on top of each other. And then they became lifelong friends and we're missing that forcing function that I think the greatest generation have. But I think we can get back to it. It's one of the reasons I ran for office. Yep. No, that national service piece is so important. And uh, you're right. It doesn't have to be military service, but something where you're investing in the country that you're getting so much from and that yep. what you're getting is supposed to be options and opportunities based off how much work you want to put in. But yep. having everyone, like I have a shared experience with everyone who's been through BUDS, whether they went through in 1962, 78, 90, whatever, and the guy that's going to graduate tomorrow. And same thing, you have that same thing. You have that Ranger School, you have that SF Selection, you have that boot camp, you have that, that, that shared experience. And as Americans, we don't have that really unless we went into the military or we went to the same university or we have some sort of a, uh, some sort of a touch point played on the same sports team, whatever it might be, but there's not that national service that we would all have a touch point and be investing in the future of the nation at the same time. So, uh, thank you for championing that. Um, cause oftentimes that's a, that's a hard thing to, uh, to push forward, uh, especially, yeah. especially where you, where you now work. Uh, <laughs> But I have so many things I want to talk to you about, and I, I'm going to be respectful of your time, but I have so much I want to talk Go to you about. It, so uh, yeah. I want to have you back on because I already know I'm not going to get to even half of these things. But uh, <laughs> so September 11th, where where were you on on September 11th? And then how did that was, shape what happened going yeah, forward I was for actually, you? Yeah, I was actually in Savannah, Georgia. Uh, uh, I had uh, transitioned, just transitioned out of the military, off active duty. Uh, but I knew when I saw that second plane uh, hit, 
Uh, I actually contacted a childhood friend of mine that was in the South Tower. Uh, by the grace of God, he was out having kind of a business breakfast meeting. He wasn't there. And I told him, get the hell out of Manhattan, because this is, I think, you know, just the tip of the iceberg of what's coming. But I knew that I was going to go back in. And, and that's how I ended up, you know, back in the military it was after September 11th. And she went back in and had you already done Ranger School or was that that next? I'd already and then done Ranger School. And so, you know, the, the, the difference with the Army, as you know, is you can't even try out for Special Forces until you're, a, uh, you know, promotable to captain uh, or a lieutenant in the Navy uh, or an E6, you know, staff sergeant on, on the enlisted time. You've got to go kind of season in big Army before you can go be special. Uh, so I had done that seasoning time. And unfortunately, uh, a friend of mine introduced me to something I didn't know existed was that the SEALs and Green Berets have reserve units. Uh, and so I ended up going the reserve route. Uh, and But you go through all the same training just when you're done. Uh, you've got to stay in shape with the active duty guys and be ready to go, keep your skills sharp, uh, but then have a day job. Uh, and my day job ended up actually in the Pentagon as a civilian policy advisor uh, uh, going forward. And I ended up having this fascinating back and forth between kind of there I was a civilian in the Pentagon, then I would deploy and actually have to be one of the only idiots in Washington that has to go do the strategy that, uh-huh. you know, that you are recommending back at the big headquarters. It's so fascinating because that is so unique to you. Uh, in yeah. that there can't be, you might be the only one that had a position as a policy advisor to the president, the vice president, Donald Rumsfeld, uh, Robert Gates. I mean, at these very senior levels, and then you would take off the suit, put on the uniform and you're down range. You're in Afghanistan and you're not in a talk. You're not in a tactical operations no. center for those listening, no. uh, where they, you might think, oh, he just went down range. And was, no, he's on those front lines in there doing the job, uh, yeah. not just uh, not just approving things and doing staff work in a talk somewhere. So you yeah, got and after then, it. And, the, and the, the other side of that would be coming back, taking off the uniform, putting the coat and tie back on and going, hey, boss, you know, and eventually to Vice President Cheney, you know, was his counterterrorism advisor, right? Going, hey, boss, uh, respectfully, I know what Pentagon just briefed you, but I was just out there for a year and that ain't what happened, right? <laughs> That's not what happened. It, is what happened, bringing that truth to power and then try to actually correct the policies with that, with, with that ground truth. But to your point, uh, you know, in one of my tours, it was just me uh, and two enlisted soldiers, uh, a communications guy and a medic embedded with 90 Arabs in their task force in Afghanistan, partnered with another couple of hundred Afghans. So it was three of us with several hundred of them. I was, I was as close as I'm going to get to Lawrence of Arabia which every Green Beret wants to be. Uh, and uh, if, you know, if I never eat goat or, you know, goat or, um, or, you know, chicken that you, yeah, you some flatbread came right yeah. out the village, uh, I'm all right. I'm good. I hear you. I hear you. And, and I mean, it's so fascinating. It's a movie. I mean, it should, it sounds like it's a thriller novel. I mean, it, that's what it sounds like. Like, hey, you hey, know, no, no one would ever those. do this sort of thing. And, yeah. but it's so fascinating. I mean, I could take this whole thing and just change some names and call it my next book. Um, but you wrote one right here yeah. and, uh, this is incredible warrior diplomat. And I love that all the proceeds go to the, uh, the green Beret foundation. Yep. Um, and yeah, everybody needs to read this, but especially right now when we're making these decisions and, and we're moving guys back from Afghanistan, people are, are, are reengaged with, with the question of what we did there and how we can take those lessons and apply them going forward. Hopefully, uh, a little more wiser than we, we did in the past, but, uh, this is an incredible book. I love that the proceeds are going where they're going. Um, can you talk a little bit? And, and the forward is by Peter Bergen, who uh, I've read all his all his stuff. Of course, well before September 11th, I was reading his stuff and have yeah. continued to. Do. I'd love to talk to him at at some point. Um, but uh, but this is incredible. So, how, one, um, can you tell us a little bit more about the the Green Bray Foundation, where all these yeah, all well, the proceeds so are it going? Goes, it's gone to the and, Green Bray Foundation, also the Matt Pacino Foundation, which is you know we all have lost our, our, our brothers and sisters downrange. Matt's one of the, you know, the, the guys on one of the bracelets that I wear that I didn't bring back. Um, and one thing just real quickly about the cover is uh, the Afghan standing above me, if you, if, you, if you look at that, is actually now an American citizen, came over on the SIV program. He was one of our interpreters uh, that his family's thriving, his kids are in school. But, you know, also pictured in there is one of the interpreters that 
I didn't bring back that was actually found with American documentation on him at a Taliban checkpoint. Uh, and he was taken back to his village and beheaded along with several of his brothers and cousins. Right. So, as you know, they don't just put their life on the line. Uh, they put their entire families lives on the line, literally their heads on the chopping block yeah. to stand with us and to fight with us uh, against ex- uh, uh, extremism. And so I've been pounding the table and, and helping lead the charge to get them out. Uh, and, and I'm glad the, the administration's finally taken some action. But look, uh, you know, uh, the intelligence community is pretty clear that al-Qaeda, ISIS is, may uh, likely come roaring back in the wake of a Taliban takeover. Uh, I think they certainly will. That means uh, special operators are going to have to go back in, and they, we need those local allies. They need to know that we're going to keep our promises uh, because it sends a message around the world that we don't and won't that uh, is just going to hurt us uh, in theaters all over the world if we don't do the right thing. Yeah. So, I, so- I mean, gosh, it must be so surreal for you when you, uh, or maybe not, when you look back at uh, at that that time in uniform and then as a policy advisor, um, is it surreal to look back at that, or in, or was it surreal at the time that you were going from the front lines in Afghanistan then to a, a policy meeting in Washington D.C.? Yeah, um, or was it just something that you just did and did and did, and that was your job? And now, what is it like? It, 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 it was both. I mean, it was, it, it was right. I, I was just doing everything I can and everything I could uh, to improve the war effort. You know, how do we have those disconnects between what the president of the United States intends and he knife hands in the room, the White House situation room that I'm out on the ground seeing us do the exact opposite? How do those disconnects and policy occur? And I was in a unique position to try to fix it and tweak it. At the same time, believe me, man, there were many days in the White House. There's many days here in the Capitol where I'm like, how did uh, how did a redneck from North Florida <laughs> get here? Uh, I was waiting on the Secret Service, to knock on the door and say, excuse me, Mr. President, you know, hey, waltz, like we're out. on you. Get it. Yeah, out. <laughs> right. Um, but it's that ground truth that that made me valuable to someone like BP Cheney. And it's it's why I ran for office. Uh, it, it's it's not just knowing the issues and having dirt under your fingernails. Um, it's that that ethos that I was talking about this morning. You know, Jack, we've gone from a record of veterans in the Congress at 80% in the 1970s. Uh, it was about three quarters of the House and Senate were vets. Today, it's at 18%, record low in our nation's history. And again, it's not so much knowing those foreign policy or military veteran issues, that ethos, like we're willing to die for that flag, then we should be willing to take tough votes, roll up our sleeves and compromise. That's both sides of the aisle. Uh, and I co-founded a caucus called Four Country, Republicans and Democrats uh, that all have served, all put our lives on the line and are now serving here in Congress and like guys and gals that are willing to be pragmatic and figure things out and move the ball for, for our great nation. I mean, so, so shocking that no one has done that before. I mean, a, a good friend of mine, Eli Crane, who's a former SEAL, uh, he just announced his uh, candidacy today, actually. So good. when people watch this, it'll be a couple of weeks back, but um, from, from Arizona. So you'll have, hopefully you'll have another one in there soon joining that caucus and wanting to get good. some uh, some stuff done for the, for the American people. Because it's so hard on the outside looking in to just imagine certain people on different sides of that aisle sitting down and having a drink together or going to a baseball yeah. game together and talking things over. It seems like there is just so much of a disconnect and, and it benefits some people um, for there to be that disconnect. So it's so hard well, for, from the outside looking in to, to just see it. It, it, it <laughs> seems when people use the word dysfunctional, and I don't think that's the right word to use um, because it is functional, um, but it's just not functioning uh, in a way that necessarily always benefits those freedoms, those options and opportunities that the people you just talked about uh, died for, came back with missing their arms and their legs um, from the inception of this country up yeah. until today uh, to give us those freedoms and uh, those options and opportunities. So it's uh, so two, so two it's quick tough. things on that. One, one is, you know, there is a lot of good work that gets done and we do roll up our sleeves. It's not sexy. It doesn't make the headlines. And frankly, the media loves drama. So they're going to focus on, right, the negative. Uh, but there is a level of dysfunction. One, our founding fathers intended it to be hard. 
right? They intended there would be a lot of checks and balances and friction. But I do think there is a level of dysfunction. Uh, and, and I do think there's a direct tie to that record low number of veterans. Um, because again, when you have that commonality of service, like we can disagree on unions or even controversial things like abortion, but but we also know that at the end, we got to you know, put our own interests aside for, for the greater good. And that ethos is missing. And then final thing on the veterans, I know you're really engaged in the community and I am too. It doesn't have to be in DC. We need veterans on county commissions, city councils, uh, right? State yep. reps. I mean, you know, at every level, because it's at the local level really where the rubber meets the road that affects your everyday lives. I mean, the, the national stuff gets the headlines, but there's a lot of local work and we need that ethos, that drive, that mission focus at every level. And I tell veterans like telling war stories at the VFW because you went out down range, <laughs> like ain't good enough guys. Like yeah. keep serving, find ways to keep giving back to this great nation. Yep. No, that's exactly right. And, and those, uh, those national level politics, those grab the headlines, you know, those grab the tweets, but really yeah. it is that local, that local level engagement, joining those school boards, showing up at a school board meeting, Hell yeah. you know, like, like those sorts of things, that's what moves the ball forward. And they, they write, those don't get the headlines, but that's so, so important for veterans to get involved in or for anybody who, uh, who wants to make change rather than just sit back and, you know, comment on a, on a tweet or a post or something like that from the, you know, the safety of their, uh, uh of their bedroom or whatever. Right. And, get engaged. And, uh, yeah. and there are ways to do that in this country. And I think if you do that national level service, that just leads to more engagement going forward because it becomes a natural thing uh, that it's yep. our duty as citizens to, to give back to this great nation, not just for what, what us in our small circle, but for those future generations. Because everything we're talking about today and those decisions we make today, yeah, wonderful for, for tomorrow, but it's those generations that we owe putting in the requisite time, energy, and effort into these right decisions. Right on, brother to, uh, for, for those people. So, man, it's just crazy. Um, but, uh, gosh, there's so many things I want to, want to ask you, uh, what was the hardest thing, I guess, when you were doing that, when you're going down range, coming back, talking to the vice president, talking to Robert Gates, talking to, to, uh, secretary of defense Rumsfeld, what was a, the hardest decision that you saw made at the, or one of the hardest that you can talk about at that executive level when they're thinking about the guys downrange troops oh, on the gosh. ground? What's one you of the know, hardest things you saw them struggle with? Uh, there's, there's a number. I'll tell you one of the more noble that I saw was we did a strategic review in 07 and 08. Uh, and it said Afghanistan isn't going well, right? Like it had been going well. Iraq took all the, the uh, attention uh, and all the resources, frankly. But the Taliban had come roaring back. Pakistan was, was not helpful. In fact, it was working against us in many ways. And we presented this series of options to uh, President Bush uh, at the end of his administration. And he said, you know what? I'm not going to do these because the Obama administration is coming in. And I'm afraid just politically, they'll have to kind of go the opposite direction. So I'll take the hit from history, slide these over to the Obama administration. And that, you know, eventually a lot of that became their policy. Uh, because he just knew that was the right thing to do. So I thought that was pretty incredible. The hardest thing uh, for me was was getting the kind of national security community around the fact uh, that Pakistan was a big part of the problem. No counterinsurgency, counterterrorism effort in history that I know of has been successful when the bad guys have sanctuary next door. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there was just a lot of friction in the intelligence community was these just rogue agents in Pakistan that were helping the Taliban was a matter of state policy. Uh, we finally got folks to the point where they said, no, this is a matter of state policy. And in fact, I was just out there and the Pakistani military was shooting at us <laughs> while letting the Taliban shoot at us as well. So um, again, it was bringing that ground truth back to the fight uh, and the fights in Washington uh, to get everybody on board to say, we got to put a stop to this. It seems like there's so much of this that could be um, not negated, but um, we could put a little more thought into a lot of these decisions based on the study of history rather than just coming in and getting a quick brief or a one pager or a talking point, but uh, really delving into the study of history, to the study of the, these regions uh, so that we can make the best decisions possible for for the country, for the men we're gonna, and women we're going to send down range uh, yeah. to the people whose countries we're going into because there's 
there's a, uh, there's a lot of work out there and we have some more recent examples in history. We don't have to go back to Alexander the Great for Afghanistan. You know, we can go to the British experience in the 1800s. We can go to the Soviet experience not that long ago. And now we have 20 years of data uh, from us being engaged in that part of right. the world. So it just seems like a study of history is, uh, is oftentimes what's missing to add context to some, to some of the decisions that, uh, that we make at the executive level in, uh, in this country. Yeah, no, for for sure. And just having, um, you know, having people in decision making positions that have some experience in that part of the world, right? Understand right. how uh, you know people there think, how they approach their own interests, uh, and then what we can do going forward. I'm convinced that we need to have, and and we'll uh, eventually have to go back to have a small footprint there. You know, we're fighting against an idea. Uh, right. It's relatively easy to bomb a tank or hit a ship, really hard to bomb an idea. And this idea of Islamic extremism uh, isn't going anywhere. You know, we may be done with Afghanistan, but it's not done with us. Uh, and it took decades to defeat the idea of, of fascism, decades longer to defeat the idea of communism, uh, at least to where it wasn't an existential threat. And I think it's still going to take some time, unfortunately, uh, to defeat the idea of Islamic extremism. But the existential question, at least in my time on the Armed Services Committee, is how do we do China, Russia, <laughs> Iran, North Korea, count, global counterterrorism overlaid with $30 trillion in debt, right, uh, and, and counting. Yeah. So, you know, we're in a tough spot as a nation. And, you know, again, that's why we need more veterans, you know, here, here in the foxhole with me. Uh, help and make yep. these decisions. No, absolutely. And when we're talking about a expeditionary counterinsurgency type of a of a mission, um, that I, in looking at it, it seems today that is made a lot more difficult with the influence of social media, where you didn't you didn't have that all these these years ago. You didn't have a twenty four hour news service first, uh, then you didn't have a, a yeah. websites next, and then a Facebook, and then a real time Twitter that you can use to manipulate, that you can use uh, to to, uh, to to influence behaviors, um, and not even from those company level. Of course, they're doing it for advertising dollars and all the rest of it. But you can do it yeah. as an entity, as an enemy. Uh, you can look at the battle space and see how it's different than it was in 1975, 1985, and you can say, oh, look at these are some of the things I've I've used. And you mentioned in here, you mentioned information operations in, in your book. And for me, I always noticed that downrange, both in Iraq and Afghanistan, how the enemy seemed to plan backward from the right. impact they wanted from a mission or an attack or whatever else it was and work backward on how to get that, where we would say, Hey, we're going to go after this person here. We're going to go into this neighborhood. We're going to drag them out of bed. We're going to bring them back here. We're going to question them. We're going to go hit a couple more people later that night, depending on what he, this guy tells us. Uh, and then we have a PAO that's running around that's saying, okay, how do we, uh, if something bad happened, you know what, you know, we hit, hit the wrong house or somebody got killed in the way to and from now we're reacting. So it seems like our public relations and our information operations were so reactive, whereas That's the right. enemies was the exact opposite of that. And I don't know if we've learned that lesson uh, going forward, but it seems like in this time, this day and age, an expeditionary type of counterinsurgency operation is going to be hampered by these more technical means that are available now, these social media platforms that the enemy can now use as part of their information operations campaign. So uh, what did you see downrange as far as that went? And what yeah. does that look like going forward? Well, you, you you nailed it. I mean, we use public affairs or information operations to explain our operations, right? Uh, and what, you know, good, bad, or indifferent, either to highlight or to, you know, to kind of explain and dig us out of a hole when they don't go well. The enemy does the opposite. They figure out what narrative they want, and then they'll tailor their operations to further their narrative, even if even if it means they lose tactically. So they may want to make the point to the local populace or the international media that they're completely viable and capable and a, and a strong force and hit 10 bases at once, knowing they're going to lose fighters, knowing they're not, they're only going to maybe overrun one of them. Uh, and it'll be a tactical loss, but a strategic narrative success uh, that the local military backed by the United States can't defend itself, can't defend the locals, uh, and that the terrorists are still a viable uh, fighting force. That's kind of an example of, of what they would do, and they would do it all the time. Or, you know, the classic, uh, you know, I, I've had this happen to me uh, a, you know, dozens of times where they'll, they'll open fire on us from behind women and children, you know, inflicting, knowing that, that women and children are going to get caught in that crosshair 
And, you know, we're damned if we do, damned if we don't. Uh, if, if we don't fire back, we're taking casualties. And if we do, then they're highlighting in their propaganda outlets and across their social media that mm-hmm. we're there killing their women and killing their children. So yeah. that's, you know, that's what they will do time and time again. And frankly, it's not just uh, terrorist groups. Uh, you know, the, the Russians do the same thing. You know, Putin is playing with a pair of like fours. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. and he's the best bluffer out there with a decrepit military, declining population and a mafia like economy. But uh, he knows what strategic narrative he wants, whether it's Russia back in the Middle East or uh, stunting Ukraine's uh, move towards the West and will then tailor his operations to fit that narrative. No, exactly right. I'm glad you brought that up because it's not just uh, Al-Qaeda. It's not just ISIS. It's not just Taliban. It's not just these insurgencies. It's when we're talking about China, we're talking about Russia, we're talking about North Korea, we're talking about Iran and things that they do that we would never think of doing for, let's say, a strategic level target. Like, let's say it's a bioweapons facility, nuclear facility, something like that, Uh, moving a school next door moving, putting a hospital right there, right. moving children into that target area. So as soon as, so the, it's this, it's this very, I don't know, it's this very interesting dynamic. And when people are all interested in transparency, transparency in government, transparency in military operations. But as soon as let's say an enemy knows that we are aware of a certain location somewhere, well, guess what? Guess what's going in there? Children are going in there. Hospitals yeah. going in Hamas, there. Like that. You know, Hamas does it in, in the, uh, you know, in Gaza all the time to the Israelis and they go through extraordinary lengths uh, uh, to, to try to avoid those casualties. Yeah. But again, when you're launching rockets at Israeli cities from within schoolyards, uh, when you're putting the caches in buildings that, you know, journalists, uh, are, are also reporting from and on and on and on, you know, for them, it's a win-win situation. Uh, and it's, it's disgusting. It's despicable. Uh, we need to call it out. And, and that's why I get so frustrated, frankly, the members of the left here, uh, in Washington that try to put us on a moral equivalence or even the Israelis and these terrorist thugs Mm -hmm. on a moral equivalence, uh, is just wrong. And, uh, I'm going to speak out about it and have. Yep. And what gets highlighted are the times when we, when we slip up, it seems. And, yep. uh, it's really what that thing that we cannot lose in, uh, in warfare is that moral high ground and, you know, we have to maintain it. But once again, when you talk about local level politics, same thing, local level leadership, essentially of a, of a platoon of a troop, it's not just a, a jag coming in and talking about it once for a half hour before you deploy, uh, or a commanding officer walking in and then walking back out with his, uh, senior enlisted advisor right next to him. When the guys are thinking about something else or what they have to go do sign a will or go to the obstacle course or go to this next block of training. No, it's yeah. that, it's that Lieutenant, it's that chief, it's that staff Sergeant. It's those guys right there that are talking about these things. So the first time that uh, an E3 who's 19 years old is in the back of a gun truck in Afghanistan or Iraq, the first time he's thinking about these things isn't when there's somebody in his sights with a child in front of him or whatever that situation. Yeah, might car be, so. comes car comes speeding at him and you got women and children in the back seat. Uh, but right, I mean, the day before you were hit, you were hit by a suicide bomber in the exact same kind of white Toyota, right? <laughs> you know, yep. like. And you've got those split seconds and that comes down to training and leadership. You're absolutely right. Yeah. All about, all about that leadership. Um, and so speaking of that, when, when we, it seems like, and, and this happens in war, if you're a student of history and you look at, look at even world war two, look at world war one, look at any, any, any conflict throughout history, strategic goals do shift. Um, we don't just set one and then that's it for the next four years, the next 10 years or whatever it, it might be. Um, those, those, those goals shift because the battle space shifts, uh, mm-hmm. alliances shift different things happen out there and you have to be adaptive at the strategic level, just the way you are at the tactical level. Um, so being involved with this from, for the last 20 years, uh, and having experience before that as well, what were some of those biggest mistakes that we made strategically when we looked at Afghanistan, when we went in there, uh, after September 11th, and then we got to our mid 20, uh, 20, uh, 22 or 20, uh, 2002, <laughs> uh, when we got, when we're a year, when we're not even a year out after September 11th, and some of the predictions that uh, senior level policymakers or, or some think tanks made that, hey, we're going to get bogged down in here uh, forever. And all of a sudden, you know, we're in Kabul. All of a sudden, uh, we have we have Karzai. All of a sudden, things just were a little bit, little bit different. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, fifth group went in there. We have some CIA guys going in there. It made a significant impact on the battlefield uh, by using some technical means out there with some air power, with locals. I mean, it was, what an incredible year. Um, and then what did we do? 
Uh, so what mistakes sure. did we make over the, after that first initial push into Afghanistan yeah. that maybe looking back, uh, we could have done differently. And, 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 and not a, not a book plug, but I, I write a lot uh, about mm -hmm. the mistakes that we made. Yep. Um, Very honest in here. I love that you're yeah. so honest in here. Uh, it's not, it's not political in the fact that it's not Republican or Democrat. It's uh, their no politics way. in I, here. Look, because, I wrote it before uh, I got in this crazy yeah. business of politics because I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to capture, you know, a hundred years from now, right. When people are looking back on this war and saying, what the heck, asking the same questions, you know, I want them referring. It was mentor of mine said, Mike, I don't care if nobody reads it. You need to capture your experiences mm -hmm. because one day people are going to refer, re referring to those, you know, in the footnotes. But I yeah. think the short that the, you know, the shorter answer is really in three big buckets. Um, uh, number one, which we already talked about, was Pakistan and a sanctuary. So we didn't necessarily completely defeat the Taliban. We just pushed them next door. Uh, into Pakistan, where they were able to rest, refit. And a couple of years later, 05, 06, where I was there again, um, uh, they came They came roaring back. Uh, and as we know, Osama bin Laden was still there, you know, running the show uh, and, and keeping al-Qaeda warm to try to hit the West again, right? So we pushed them out of Afghanistan, but they still had that sanctuary in Pakistan. And we never, you know, fully cracked that. And I can go into a long piece on all the things that we've tried to get Pakistan to really take effective action. Number two was, was, and this isn't necessarily an indictment on the Iraq war, but no nation can fight two wars as well as we fight one. Uh, we weren't done in Afghanistan when we, when I saw all the resources leave in Afghanistan to go into Iraq where we did get bogged down for years. Uh, and, 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 and then number three, that led us to be heavily reliant on NATO. So yes, we've been in Afghanistan for 20 years, but for key portions, we were looking to the Europeans uh, to, to take this on. And uh, you know they did a lot of fighting and dying there, and I don't want to take away from them, but there was a big, big disconnect between what their soldiers were willing to do and what their capitals and their parliaments back in Paris and Berlin mm -hmm. uh, and Madrid were willing to let them do uh, in terms of very restrictive rules of engagement, not the resources that they promised. So, you know, really, Jack, in many ways, we were just kind of keeping it warm and checking the block and kind of keeping a lid on things, but never really going full throat to, to kind of win that conflict uh, or by, with, and through to help the Afghan security forces do everything they needed. Uh, to win it. That said, I really bristle when people call it a failure. Uh, we haven't had another 9-11 emanate from Afghanistan in the last 20 years. And I remind people, look, we've had 30,000 plus soldiers in South Korea for you know, 70 years. We've got 50,000 still in Japan. We've had, we've had special operators in Colombia for 40 plus years in the Philippines. I mean, I can go around. We still yeah. have a battalion, Germany. man sitting in the Sinai since the 60s, counting ships. So to say that, you know, we shouldn't have a small force there, that one continues to go after and keep a lid on uh, Al-Qaeda and ISIS and other leaders, uh, and is, if they're running and worried about where they're going to sleep in the middle of the night, they're not plotting and planning to attack us. We got to stay on offense. And then another small component to keep training and mentoring the Afghan security forces the Afghans are out there doing their fighting and dying. Uh, we're in very much in a supporting role with logistics and air power, uh, intelligence. Uh, and, and look, I think that is a kind of like an insurance premium that you pay month to month at a very small level to, for, you know, to prevent yeah. that big catastrophic piece from coming in and, and hitting the nation again. Yeah. No. And I saw that firsthand. I was in Afghanistan in 2003 and with this huge task force and we had the helicopters and the strike force and we had the outstations and the whole thing, all these intelligence assets. It was incredible. And then it picked up and moved and it went to Iraq <laughs> and uh, yeah. it left me and one other guy behind, like uh, pulled me out of doing the kicking door part. And then I got to do some, uh, I got to really see some of that staff coordination piece. Um, and uh, so all that, all those assets went away, um, yeah. you know, uh, it's always interesting to see it firsthand, not just to, to you know, to hear it, uh, hear about being distracted. Well, yeah, no, I, I saw that stuff pick up and leave. 
And then when we're talking about some accountability, um, it seems like if we go back to, you know, to World War II and we go to George Marshall, most people know him from the Marshall Plan. So the, the post-World War II era rebuilding of Europe. Um, well, really what he did before, during, or in the lead up to World War II and during World War II was hold military leaders accountable and replace them. Uh, and I, that's right. From, from my perspective, you know, I was enlisted and then an officer. So I was, you know, at this, at the tactical level, essentially my whole time looking up at that operational and strategic level, but rarely did I see someone replaced for failure to perform competence. Uh, it's a great it was, point. It was always a scandal or something like that where someone was replaced, but not for what George Marshall did pre-World War II, during World War II, to get the right people in the right places at the right time. And we can go through, we, we know these names in World War II, most of the ones near the end, when we got all the people in the right places to make things happen, we know those names, they're, they're in our history, they're in our conscience. Uh, and the, I don't know, I think it started to change, Korea maybe, a little bit, then more in Vietnam, and specifically I, today, we do not hold our senior level military leaders accountable. And and did you see that going back and forth between the two? Yeah, I worlds? wrote. I, I have a, I have a whole chapter on it as well. And uh, look, I think it's it's the all volunteer, what I call now the careerist military, mm -hmm. as we moved away from the draft. And if you think about it, in those previous wars, World War II, after Marshall kind of cleaned everybody out that had been hanging around through the twenties and thirties. You are pulled out of your life, whether you're a lawyer or an electrician uh, and and sent to war and you were given every incentive to take every risk necessary to win so that you could come back home. Now, a tour down range is a one year blip on an otherwise very, very promising career. So the incentive has become don't screw it up. Don't make a mistake. Don't have a base overrun. You know, don't lose a sensitive item. Uh, right. And, and it becomes, you know, the default reaction to risk is inaction because you can't get in trouble for that. Uh, you just kind of get through the tour with as least, uh, you know, with, with as few mistakes as possible to get back to that otherwise very promising career and that next promotion. Uh, you know, and I kind of saw both sides of this because in the guard, it was more like the old model, mm -hmm. right. Uh, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times I sold, told a superior officer, like, fire me. Go ahead. What are you going to do? Send me home back to my back to my day job. Yeah. This isn't, you know, my next uh, fitness rep or my next officer evaluation isn't the end all be all for me. I've got a whole other thing going on. Yeah. And uh, and so that risk aversion really set in. And I write too about how to go after a senior uh, terrorist leader. You know, conops. And how many and the the death of PowerPoint slide. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right? And I wrote in there, you know, we had to get 12 approvals by 12 different chains of command, which meant you had to submit them weeks in advance. Well, the terrorists don't just sit around and wait for all the staffing to get done <laughs> and for you to get the yeah. right font on your PowerPoint uh, so that it can get briefed to the general, you know, when he wakes up. And and so, you know, that you know, I called it counter bureaucracy as much as we were doing counterinsurgency mm. and counterterrorism. Um, and how, how badly we get in our own way uh, and hamper, you know, those those door kickers that are trying to get out there and, and, and take the fight to the enemy. Um, but it's that risk aversion uh, from that career volunteer model versus that draft model that I think is really set in culturally across the services. Well, I love that uh, counter bureaucracy. I'm going to steal that for a, another novel and, and I'm going to put you in the back and, and credit you because that's uh, that's fantastic. But it brought me right back. Reading about that 12-step process in, in your book brought me right back to being in the talk, trying to get everything together so we can get out that night, get those approvals that we needed, waiting for somebody to wake up or go to a meeting or whatever it was to get that green block. You have these little green checklists that would pop up if it was uh, approved at these different levels, I remember. And yeah, it was just chaos. But what, what I also loved about being enlisted and then an officer, very similar to your uh, to you not having to worry about a, a career is that with enough time in as an enlisted guy, like I'm good, I'm fine. Like I never make yeah. any decision based on making that next level. I'm only staying in this thing as long as I can continue to kick the doors in and affect at the tactical level. And I'm gone. I'm not looking to right. make a uh, team CEO or 05 or 06 or whatever it is. Yeah. So that really felt freeing to me to make the right decisions for the right reasons. Uh, and the guys understood that at well at the tactical level, they could say, Oh, this guy's not making a decision based off him not wanting to get in trouble uh, and make that next rank or, or whatever. But I, I just can't be. tell you how maddening it was. You know, we would have village elders, tribal chiefs uh, that we had developed relationships with. And then when they call and say, we need you, the Taliban is, is threatening to behead me and my family 
uh, for siding, you know, my tribe siding with you. Uh, and I've got to get a mother may I, you know, 15 mother may I's all the way up to go, to go help. And, and that loss of trust, that loss of yep. face, uh, you know, and then you magnify that across years and years. You're asking me kind of where things went wrong. I'm talking the cultural aspects now yep. within our military. The other piece is that we haven't fought a 20 year war. We fought 21 year wars yep. because exactly. as you know, with the rotations, all of that knowledge leaves, you may have a good handover from one unit to the next. But if I wanted to go back four or five years and say, what happened in that valley? What happened to that tribe? It just, the, the knowledge wasn't there. Yep. Uh, it wasn't collated into a repository that was easily accessible that I could say, what did we do there three years ago? There's nothing more embarrassing. You roll into a village and, uh, and make all these promises to the chief if he works with us, not the bad guys. And he's like, man, you know, some guy looked like you three years ago, maybe those same promises. Get out of here, buddy. <laughs> no, exactly. Um, exactly. Right? When we're and, talking about, uh, let's say when we're talking about, well, there was a great quote going back to accountability. I think it's Paul Yingling that said, he said, the private who loses a rifle gets in more trouble than a general who loses a war. That's right. And gosh, that, that's so encapsulated, especially during that 2006, seven timeframe that really hit home for a lot of people to, to hear that. Um, but uh, when we're talking about 2009 and we're seeing senior level leader our president step forward and say, um, Hey, uh, we're, we're on a, this, we're doing a surge into Afghanistan, but we're also putting a time limit on it. Uh, yeah. It seems like some of that study of history would have shown that that might not have been uh, the best way to explain our strategy, not just yep. to the American people, not just to the world, but to the enemy as well. And there's that quote that, you know, very well, the Americans have all the watches, but, uh, but we have all the time. Yeah, Taliban has so, it. So I was standing in my headquarters uh, uh, with, with, some of, uh, with some of my staff. We were actually heading up into the mountains. We were going to have a final ceremony uh, with this uh, Afghan tribe that had been kind of on the fence, 1,500 fighters that I wanted fighting with us, not, not with them. My teeth were brown. Uh, I had drank so much tea with this chief building this relationship. This was going to be the final thing. We're watching then President Obama say, yeah, we're having a surge, but we're out of here in 18 months. Uh, and I, I, you know, one of my chiefs standing next to me said, sir, can you imagine Franklin Delano Roosevelt like announcing D-Day, but then telling the Germans we're only going to be there a year, right? <laughs> it, you can imagine <laughs> the effect, right, oh. that that had. So fast Brutal. forward, this was supposed to be this big culmination. I get up there. The guy will barely speak to me, uh, almost kicked me out of the village. I finally, you know, get a sit down with him. And he said, look, I can't work with you anymore. You know, your president just told the Taliban and everybody else that you're abandoning us. And I tried to say, no, no, that's like a year and a half from now. We'll still fight together. He said, no, you don't understand. Uh, and, and, you know, the thing that stuck with me, and I know this isn't popular for a lot of people. They don't want to hear it. He said, until you're willing to tell the bad guys that you, your children and your grandchildren are going to be fighting with us against their, you know, extremism. Um, and he said, it doesn't matter whether there's 10 of you here or 10,000. It's they need to hear that you're with us and that you're going to stand with us and that you're going to stand against them. Otherwise, I got to do what's best for my family and my tribe. And he completely backed away. The whole deal fell apart. Uh, and I think that really captured for me the fact that and th th that's not a hit necessarily in President Obama that I he pull, completely pulled the rug out from under. We haven't ever been really mobilized as a nation uh, to say that we've got to stay on offense. Uh, we've got to be in this for the long haul. Uh, we have for other conflicts, but for a number of reasons, we haven't on this one. Uh, and I fear that, you know, if it hits us again, the next Pulse nightclub, the next San Bernardino, the next 9-11, you know, how, how many are we going to lose fighting our way back in? But this time with no bases and no local allies. Just to bring that back home to this job, though, one thing that I'm going to put in the next defense bill is mandating that all of that knowledge from all of those units, SEALs, Rangers, Green Berets, infantry, uh, civil affairs, gets put into one place. So... That next SEAL team that does have to go back in five years from now can access that knowledge and search it and learn from it and not repeat the same mistakes and lose good men and women in the same old places that you and I were fighting 
you know, years before. So, yeah, yeah, again, that's what motivates me to to get up in the morning and uh, put up with the garbage that we have to uh, to get that kind of stuff done. That's going to make a difference. Yep. So keeping that corporate knowledge and, uh, and then sharing it with the new guys that are coming in. And, uh, and I know you have to get out to vote. I know you have a vote coming up, so I've got my yeah. eye on the clock here. Uh, but I want to have you back on at some point where it makes sense for you, because I want to talk about, uh, the constitution. I want to talk about the bill of rights. I want to talk about the next 10 years as it looks, uh, as, as you look at this next 10 years and we're talking about first amendment issues and we're talking about, uh, big tech and we're talking about these sorts of, of things that really, uh, that really impact these future generations, uh, domestically. And then that also, foreign entities can use to influence our own, our populace. Uh, Very interesting questions going forward. So I'd love to have you back on to talk about that. I had my, uh, I had my bill of rights and my constitution right here, ready to go, but we're, (laughs) I I know you got to go vote. You got to put this stuff into practice uh, on the floor here. And then, uh, yeah, I even had this for you, even had this for you right here. So this is, uh, yeah, I read this in high school and this was about the warrior diplomats. And I remember because my parents, I'd wanted to be a SEAL since I was a little kid. And I, so I was reading all these books and, you know, there was only so much SEAL stuff and only so much Army Special Forces stuff. But I remember reading about the warrior diplomat in here. So from, you know, at age 13, 14, I was reading this book and, uh, and it really made an impact. And uh, I know you got to get out and vote, but I, I want to thank you so much for stepping in this ring. Uh, I get asked about politics quite a bit and uh, it's the easiest answer I can give. Uh, it, it's negative. Uh, I, I can't, I'm not, I'm not going out there. It's too scary. I'm not, I'd rather go back to Afghanistan when we have to go back, put me, put me back in there. Um, but thank you for, for stepping up and, uh, going to a place where, uh, gosh, and it cannot be comfortable for you, for your family, uh, especially today where there's no barriers to anyone who wants to tell you how much they hate you or how much, how, how wrong you are, uh, zero barriers, uh, in place there with uh, the rise of social media. So Thank you for putting yourself through it for, yeah, for my sure, family man. and for the country and for future generations. Absolutely. And thank you, know, thank you, man. Thank you for being a leader in the community and, and for to never stop serving. Right. I mean, we, we've got to keep giving back one way or another, uh, whether that's, that's one child at a time through our own kids, through our own families, through our communities, through our neighbors. And then, you know, eventually I'm, I'm a big believer in bottoms up. I'll tell you the easiest and quickest answer that I know of, uh, is we got to get civics education back in our schools. You know, when we have polling showing that 75% of uh, Americans between 18 and 25 cannot name the three branches of government, uh, that's a huge, that's a huge problem. So you kind of have all this activism and all this activity, but you know, how do we channel it in a way that's in line with that constitution? Uh, that of course was not perfect. Uh, just like, uh, you know, the men who wrote it were imperfect, but we will always strive for a more perfect union. Uh, and, uh, yeah, happy to talk to you, man. Uh, I really, really enjoyed it. And, um, uh, I think you do incredible work, even for a Navy guy. <laughs> Thank you so much. That means a lot coming from you. So, yeah. uh, you know, take care and, uh, yeah, keep fighting that good fight out there. And I'm, uh, I'm here to support anything you need. Welcome to the gear highlight portion the Danger Clothes podcast. So usually I talk about a rifle, a shotgun, a pistol, a blade, something like that, some cool piece of gear. But today I want to talk about reading. And my guest today was Congressman Michael Waltz, who represents Florida's 6th Congressional District. And what an amazing guy. Uh, But this is his book right here, Warrior Diplomat. And uh, all proceeds go to support the Green Beret Foundation. And such an amazing guy and a unique story. Uh, Someone who was on the front lines in Afghanistan and on the front lines of our policymaking initiatives in Washington at the highest levels possible. So he has a unique lens from which to view these past 20 years uh, in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other hotspots around the world. So can't recommend this book highly enough. Make sure you get this. Uh, And I'm just so fired up that there are guys like Michael Waltz that are going into this arena, that are going into politics. Um, And as we talk about on the podcast, how important that is to get in at the local level to impact uh, your local school board uh, or wherever else that might be. So national politics, yeah, that gets all the, uh, all the, uh, Fox News and CNN and MSNBC uh, commentary, but really it's at that local level where we can make a difference. So uh, get this book. And we talk a lot about reading on this. I talked a lot about history on this podcast and how important it is to put in the requisite time, energy, and effort into the study of history so we can make wise decisions 
going forward because those decisions don't just um, reflect what's going to happen to you in the next election cycle. They impact that son, that daughter, that mother, that father that are going downrange into harm's way who might not be coming home. So we owe it to those people and to future generations to put in that time. So these are just some of the books on Afghanistan that I grabbed off the shelf over here uh, quickly before I sat down to do this segment. Um, So there's so many books out there on Afghanistan. I highlight a lot of them uh, in my, uh, I have a blog where I talk about uh, books. I have a reading list that I choose six selections from each month. You can go to my website, officialjackcar.com. And every month I choose six books, talk about where I was when I read them, how they impacted me, either as a combat leader or an author or a citizen. Uh, So go check that out. Uh, There's a lot of information out there. And with all the distractions today, I can't really stress how important it is, especially for, for, for kids, uh, young adults to put down those devices and to get into the pages of these books. Uh, so they have that foundation moving forward, uh, and not just books like this, but our founding documents. And I didn't get to talk to Congressman Waltz about that on this podcast. I'm definitely going to have him back because these next 10 years, I think are just so critical, especially when we're talking about the first amendment and about what some of these larger corporations, big tech, um, how they have control over how our behaviors, our thoughts and behaviors. So, and that stuff is not going away. So uh, if you don't have these, if you're just going online to look at the constitution, the bill of rights, declaration of independence, um, get hardbound editions, put them in your home. And uh, it just shows to the kids how different this is than the other things that they might do online. So having a physical copy of the constitution, uh, this is the constitution, bill of rights, declaration of independence, articles of confederation, common sense by Thomas Paine, book of virtues by Benjamin Franklin. So some of those documents, some of those, um, some of those founding documents, letters that, uh, mean so much to this country when it comes to freedom, when it comes to options, when it comes to opportunities and what we owe future generations. So they, have those same options and opportunities that we did. So pick these up, highly recommend that. And we also talked on this podcast a lot about accountability. And this is a great book by Tom Ricks. It's been on my reading list before. Uh, If you go back in in the blog section of my website and check it out, I talk a little bit more about it there. But uh, this talks about really what, uh, how military leaders were held accountable in past conflicts, in particular, World War II. So check that out. It'll definitely make you think, and it'll help add to that foundation of knowledge that you have so you can apply it going forward as wisdom. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Six Hour. For more about Michael Waltz, you can go to his website, just type in Michael Waltz, and that'll pop up. And you can follow him on Twitter, on Instagram, and a YouTube channel. Also, be sure and get his book, and not just get his book, but read his book and maybe get a few other copies to pass along to younger people that you know who are going in to college, going into the military, going into politics, uh, going into policy type issues, programs, but get this book out there. It is extremely valuable. So take those lessons to heart as we move forward, not just in those positions, but as citizens who are voting for people who are going to be going forward and making votes that impact future generations. This book, highly recommended. So you can follow him on those different platforms and you can follow me at Jack Carr USA on the social channels and officialjackcar.com. If you liked our conversation, be sure and leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. It's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and my YouTube channel. So until the next time, take care out there, stay strong, keep fighting. And a special thank you to Schnee's. I've been using Schnee's boots for over a decade now. As you can tell for these ones right here, just my favorites. These are the granites. I think every hunter should have a pair of these in their quiver. But these guys right here, these are the ones that I wear when I'm going into the backcountry and hope to come out heavier than when I went in. So uh, right here, granites, awesome boot. Absolutely love these. You can see these have been worn quite a bit. These are some of my other favorites right here. So these are the Hunter 2s. These are, I would wear these all day, every day if I, if I could, but uh, um, amazing boot, 
love everything they have going on over there at Schnee's. So be sure to check them out. I have some new boots now. I think I have uh, 10 pair right now. My wife has a pair. Uh, and then I just got a couple new pairs. And right here, these are the Beartooth. I've wanted these for a while. So super excited about trying out the Beartooths. That'll happen this summer and fall. And then the Kestrels right here. So those are a couple new pairs that I have in the arsenal that I'm looking forward to checking out here soon. So if you haven't heard of Schnee's, check them out online, check out their story, check out their Instagram, the boots they make in an Italian boot factory. So those are handmade in Italy. The only place you can get them is through Schnee's directly to you. So you're getting more boot for your money and uh, every part of these things. Uh, you can just tell how much care and how much time, energy, and effort goes into these boots right here. And what's also great about Schnee's is that you can go visit them in Bozeman, or you can give them a call and tell them about uh, where you're going to hunt, what you're doing, and uh, they can make some recommendations for you right there on the phone. So Schnee's, thank you so much. And I'm going to read this part because you get 10% off. Uh, so I don't want to mess this part up. When you shop at Schnee's, and that is S-C-H-N-E-E-S dot -E -E com, make sure you use the promo code JACK21, J-A-C-K-2-1. When you do, you'll save 10% off your pair of Schnee's boots and logo wear. These handmade hunting boots usually sell out fast, so grab your pair today. Take care of your feet. Don't compromise. Upgrade to Schnee's. Again, that's Schnee's, S-C-H-N-E-E-S. Dot com and promo code Jack21. In case you missed it, on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original, Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels, mm -hmm. you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What are box you... do you fit in? Which exactly, box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy exactly. or right. Right. An How, uh, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm -hmm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.